Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back. I finally have most of my voice back. Uh, it was pretty rough the last two weeks, so allergies or something. But anyway, we are back, and this week we have a musician on. So haven't had a musician on in a little while. Uh, we have John Steingard on this week. Uh, if you remember the band Hawk Nelson, uh, he was, uh, I believe, first the guitar player and then took over uh, singing duties at some point. But uh, he is Canadian by birth, as he puts it, Californian by choice. But he is also uh, a director and filmmaker from San Diego. And so he's got a really cool creative project uh, going on where he does uh, a lot of video work there called John Steingard Creative. And uh, we just had a really cool conversation. Um, it's very interesting. I've always been kind of fascinated with this idea of uh, folks who kind of basically grew up spiritually within the context of a, quote, Christian band and how, uh, how that impacts, like, not only, you know, the music that you write and the, and the art that you create, but also, you know, as you get older and maybe perhaps your belief system kind of changes a little bit and evolves, um, how, how does that look within the context of being a, quote, Christian musician? Because there doesn't seem to be, at least from the outside perspective, a whole lot of room for growth or at least, uh, you know, uh, society like giving you room for growth. So we, we had a really cool, com- interesting conversation about the industry, what that looks like to be a popular uh, Christian band and uh, what happens when your beliefs change and, and potentially uh, change to the extent where maybe uh, you no longer believe the vast majority of what you once believed and, and what that looks like. So uh, really fun uh, conversation and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, we have episodes recorded for uh, the next couple months at least. We're working on stuff for uh, for around the holidays, which is crazy to be thinking about that already. But uh, um, as always, we'll try to do some fun stuff for uh, October for Halloween. Uh, I've got some ideas. We'll see if they come to pass or not. Uh, things are crazy, obviously, with uh, quarantine still going on uh, and everything else going on out there. So just stay clear of the murder hornets and we'll all be okay. Um, so anyway, p- appreciate you guys who uh, are listening. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, thank you. Welcome. Uh, we have a website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, we have had some some weird uh, problems with the streaming directly uh, of our episodes from the website. Uh, our host site is no longer providing us uh, MP3 or MP4A, uh, I don't know, uh, links. And so uh, it's, it's uh, not allowing us to embed so that you can stream directly from the website anymore. But um, we'll get that updated at least so that you, you can see who the guest was and, uh, it'll have a link to, uh, at least SoundCloud. So working on that, hopefully we'll get that fixed. Uh, we are out of a lot of sizes of t-shirts, uh, unfortunately. So we do have an order placed right now, uh, with our printer. Uh, things are a bit slow, uh, with things being what they are right now, but we hope to have all sizes back in stock shortly. Uh, so if you're waiting on a size, we do apologize. Thank you for your patience. Um, Otherwise, yeah, go to the website. Hope to have some new blog stuff up there very, very soon. Uh, you can link to us on social media on there. Uh, you can join our Patreon family if you if you want to uh, support us there. Um, and that's about it. So thank you guys for, again, for, for supporting us and, uh, and just by listening. Uh, a big help, too, is if you give us a five-star review on iTunes, it just helps us uh, to be a little bit more visible and helps other people find us. So 
definitely, definitely greatly appreciate that. And as always, we thank uh, Nicholas Rowe, who uh, for the better part of three years has been mixing and producing all of our episodes to make them sound like I'm not recording in a closet. So uh, definitely appreciate the hard work that Nick puts in uh, and um, and also support the band that we use today. Uh, I'm recording this ahead of time, so I'm not entirely sure who we're using yet. So um, so whoever the band is, you'll find it in the show notes um, and uh, you'll find links to to their social media uh, websites and um, please go support them. A lot of these bands allow us to use their music for free. And so uh, we just ask that you go out and support uh, them, especially now during the time of pandemic, a lot of bands make most of their income off of touring and merchandise and ticket sales and stuff like that. So, uh, so as these bands can't tour, at least for the foreseeable future, um, just ask that, you know, you, you keep them in mind and, uh, help, help, uh, uh, financially support these artists so they can continue to make great music. So, uh, with that, I will get to the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Again, this is John Steingard, uh, of uh, Hawk Nelson. So um, again, great conversation. Hope it elicits some, uh, some good conversations on your end. Um, and as always, thank you for listening. So without further ado, John freaking Steingart. The shame that grips you now is crippling. It breaks my heart to see you suffering. Cause I am Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm very excited to welcome John Steingart on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to be with us. Dude, of course, man. It's a pleasure. Well, for, for those of you who, uh, who are listening out there who, who don't know uh, who John Steingart is, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, how they might know you and, and kind of, uh, uh, and then from there, maybe t- tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, for the last 15 or 16 years have been a member of the band Hawk Nelson. Um, and yeah, I grew up in a Christian home, pastor's kid, uh, started touring around the age of 20. So pretty much my entire adult life. Um, I'm 37 now. Uh, the, the, the vast majority of my adult life was spent in this band Hawk Nelson. Um, we, we came up in, you know, Christian music in the early 2000s. Uh, mid 2000, well, all the way until like almost the present. Uh, so w- we had sort of a long meandering career, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but definitely always within the Christian music space in one form or another. I think what that meant changed over time. Um, but, uh, d- definitely like increasingly we were really, uh, we were really, uh, uh, outspoken about matters of faith, uh, in our music. And, uh, a couple of months ago, um, I, I wrote an Instagram post, uh, that, uh, indicated that I, you know, where I talked about that, I, I found that I didn't believe in God anymore. And, uh, that was the result of a, a several year process of sort of deconstructing my faith and, uh, trying to figure out what it was that I really believe truly in my heart and not just, uh, not, not just what culture was I participating in and what does, you know, my career say that I should believe, but like, what do I really believe? And, um, and so, so I posted, you know, that Instagram post, uh, two, two months ago, uh, as we're speaking right now. And, uh, 
my life looked pretty different since then. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I knew it was going to change my life and I knew that coming forward with that was going to, uh, rock the boat, I guess somewhat. Um, but, but I didn't really, I mean, I was operating under the assumption that I'm not the center of anyone's universe. And so I just didn't think it would make that big of a splash. And for a few days, it, it kind of didn't. Um, but then uh, Fox News ran an article uh, saying Christian Singer says he no longer believes in God. Oh, boy. And after Fox News, yeah, after Fox News ran that article, then CNN ran one, New York Post, USA Today, uh, Guardian, uh, I mean, just name it. I mean, uh, across the board, it just blanketed the, the um, you know, the sort of regular media outlets, which blew my mind because I just, I didn't think that, I mean, I'm not like a hugely known figure, you know? Uh, so I guess it just struck a nerve. Um, and then the last couple of months has been, has been me sort of processing that and, you know, trying to figure out what to make of this whole experience and what I really believe now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it seems like media really has a fascination with uh, former Christian or, or like art, artists that were, were kind of labeled as Christian artists who have kind of renounced their faith or, or even like to some extent, like their faith has evolved over time and it's and it's different now. And that just seems to be not OK, or at least a fascination on the part of the media, because we've seen this before. You're yeah. not the first person, right? No, certainly I'm not. And and it's funny, I think in Christian circles, the way that this reality is talked about is that like the media have a narrative that they're trying to undermine Christianity in America. And I'm like, well, uh, they may have a perspective on religion that is sort of a preconceived perspective before they're getting to stories like this. But like, let's not pretend that anyone is objective here. Like, like, you know, Christian, the, the sort of, the sort of Christian culture in America, Christians have what we would call an agenda also. Right. And so like, I, I just, I, I always think it's interesting when someone, you know, when one group of person look, one group of people looks at another group of people and says they have an agenda. And I'm like, do you not? I mean, like, right. I mean, like, let's, let's be real here. Like everyone has, every person has things that matter to them and ideas that they would like to see spread. And, 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 and then people groups such as churches or, or, you know, organizations, they have those too. And, and, and we shouldn't be surprised that that's the case. Um, and every single article that I saw that wrote about my story I mean, the title might have been slightly clickbaity, um, but the content of the story was very factual. Uh, I didn't feel like there was any weird spin or anything like that. So I was actually kind of grateful that I felt like they told my story pretty honestly. That's, that is interesting. I, I mean, it does not surprise me in the slightest that Fox News was the first one to pick it up because, let's be honest, a lot of their uh, listenership or viewership or whatever – uh, would probably fall within the very kind of southern uh, evangelical 
kind of yeah vibe and so like you know that that is kind of clickbaity for them that's that is a kind of uh, a story that they would probably you know gravitate towards i would imagine yeah i actually wrote the uh i reached out to the guy that wrote the article and he's he's actually young uh, a young writer uh i guess i don't know exactly how young probably somewhere around 30 but he said he grew up listening to hawk nelson um and that's why he thought this was like a significant thing because people like him, you know, who had grown up listening to, you know, a band that, that professed certain beliefs, you know, the singer of that band was now saying that he didn't believe it anymore. And so he was sort of saying like on a personal level, that was significant for him. Uh, and so that's why he felt compelled to write about it. And, uh, and he was super kind. Um, and I thought his article was really fair. And I think he could have, especially from the Fox News perspective, I feel like he had the opportunity to wrap my story up in a in a package that was a lot more incendiary sure. than than he did. Um, and so I, I, I thought I thought that was really I was you know I was grateful that he was cool about it. You know. Yeah, that that brings up an interesting question that that I've always been kind of fascinated with, and, and that is like. So I, I kind of went about Christian music kind of backwards in a sense. Adam always laughs at me um, because <laughs> I listened to mainstream music first. I was listening to like punk rock back in the day, like, you know, Rancid and Green Day and all these bands. And and then later yeah. alternative rock like Weezer and, and bands like that. So I'm, I'm a little older than you, but like you, we probably listen to some of the same bands I would imagine. But so I listen to a lot of mainstream music. Out of, out of, curio- out of curiosity, how old are you? I'll be 41 in a week or two, I think. Yeah. You're a, you're a couple years old, doesn't mean. Yeah, not too far. So we probably yeah. had a lot of <laughs> similar influences, I would think. Um, yeah. So, like, I listened to a lot of this mainstream stuff, and it wasn't until I moved and uh, made some new friends in this, this new uh, city I lived in who kind of introduced me to this whole Christian music scene that I wasn't aware of. Because my, my, my uh, exposure, I guess, to Christian music – up until that point was like Michael W. Smith and like Stephen Curtis Chapman right. and more of that like yep. adult contemporary kind of stuff. And I had no idea yeah. there were like these really talented uh, Christian like rock bands and Christian punk bands, Christian metal bands uh, that could hold a stage with anybody, but were for whatever reason uh, kind of deemed to be Christian. And so like there is this element, I think, in kind of watching that and kind of growing up with those bands. Cause I'll be honest, I still listen to a, a lot of them. Like project 86 is one of my favorite bands of all time. And, Oh yeah. Um, you know, like blindside and, and bands like that. So like, and, and, but like, it seems to me like in hindsight, now that I am a little older, it is this interesting, uh, scenario where you've got, like you said, you started touring at, at the age of 20. And so yeah, a lot of times it's kids preaching to kids essentially, and, and these bands have kind of the same power as like a pastor would who, you know, may have a degree in theology, but like kids are, you know, being very impressionable. Like I, you know, I believed most of what, you know, my favorite artists would tell me, like, I thought they were in a position of authority to know. And like a lot of times, like I would imagine, and, and this is where I think uh, I would love to hear your, your opinion on it. Like you have these really young kids who are in these bands who are touring, who are also kind of growing in their, in their faith or not faith, uh, like alongside of you, you know, alongside with you. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a dynamic there. That's really interesting. I think, I think that when you're in a Christian band, you you actually are somewhat playing a pastoral role 
Um, but I would say that 90% of people in Christian bands did not get into it for that reason. Um, that may be changing now because it's much more obvious that that's what it means to be in a Christian band now. But, but it's like you said, er, early on, like, you know, in the early two thousands, when we sort of started, um, it was, it was just, there was a scene of, of bands that, you know, everyone sort of knew were Christian, but you could, you know, you could look at the lyric sheets in the CD, uh, case and be like, yeah, this seems like it could have come from a Christian, but it's not super Christian E. Right. Right. You know, um, so there, there early on, it was much more, it was much easier, you know, well, early on for, for me, uh, uh, it was much easier to sort of stay in that vague space and not sort of feel the pressure to play any sort of spiritual pastoral role. But as time went on and we got more outspoken about our faith and we got much more involved in the sort of, uh, like core Christian music world of Christian radio and, and like mainstream, uh, uh, Christian events and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I started finding more and more that there was an expectation that we would have something really, you know, meaningful and spiritual to say. And, uh, I took that really seriously. So I, I, I tried to, uh, constantly be reading and, you know, filling, filling myself with ideas that would potentially be, uh, helpful and meaningful to people. Um, but that sort of pastoral element was something that I, I, I accepted gradually and I never set out to to sort of be a spiritual leader. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, and so I, so I, yeah, I think that's a funny thing because it's, I mean, like you said, it's easy for people who are listening to your music to think that, Oh, this, this person has a really good handle on who God is and, you know, who they are and what their beliefs are. And like, um, if I have doubts, you know, like surely like John from Hawk Nelson doesn't have doubts because listen to the music he's written. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, like, I I can't believe that you're doubting God. I mean, just listen to these songs you wrote and they're so full of passion for God. And I'm like, well, yeah, I did believe that at the time, and I was, you know, trying to be proficient at artistic expression of these ideas. Um, so that's different, though, than than having this unwavering certainty that you could never question. You know, so yeah, it, it's a it's a quirky spot for for someone to be in to to find themselves in a sort of pastoral role without having meant to be there yeah talk talk about the just the pressures that come along with that because uh what what i've noticed recently anyway it's very been a very interesting time because there are a lot of these bands who who you know were involved in the christian circle who've been around for a long time and a lot of their uh ideas of god or or their faiths have have evolved and some of them have even said you know straight up like i don't believe in anything anymore and so we're we're seeing this very interesting kind of evolution i think and at the very least we've i've seen a lot of instances where there are these musicians uh within the community uh christian music industry who at the very least, openly saying, like, I just don't know. Like, I mean, John Mark McMillan is a yeah. good example. Like, dude wrote one of the biggest yep. worship songs of all time, and his last record was like, I don't know, man. I don't know. And it's and it's great. It's a great album. 
Um, but it, but there does seem to be this expectation and there definitely is, seems to be this backlash that comes along with it. Um, another example yeah. would be, uh, Dan, the lead singer of jars of clay. I remember, uh, yep. uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but like the, the uh, debate he got in online about, uh, gay marriage and just by oh, asking dude, questions I, got lit on I fire remember that. Yeah. Vividly. And I'm like, so, dude, just asking questions, like, calm down people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I remember, I remember that so vividly. So here I actually, that was actually kind of a significant moment for me. Um, I remember when same sex marriage was legalized by the Supreme court. Yep. I remember my, my gut told me this is a good thing. Yeah. This is progress. This is like, this is giving, giving same sex couples the ability to get married feels analogous to uh, granting better and fairer rights to, to, to minorities. Like, like the the civil the civil rights movement and and the movement to legalize same sex marriage they're they're not the same in a lot of ways, but th- they both feel like progress, right? At, at least they do to me. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I remember feeling that uh, when that Supreme Court decision was made, and I, immediately thinking, well, I can't say that publicly because it would cost me my career. And no sooner did I think that. Then I went on Twitter and I saw Twitter and I saw Dan Hazeltine um, doing exactly that. Yeah. And I didn't see them. I didn't see them around the festival circuit for a while after that. No. Um, and yeah, that that taught me a valuable lesson. Uh, it was it was you know you need to stay in line, otherwise you don't have a career. And uh, that's tough. I don't I don't know how to fix that. Other than for me personally, was just to not be a, a part of that career anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, and that's sad, isn't it? Like your choice is either you know toe the company line, or you're going to have to find something else. Because like I, I can't remember that, and this is terrible. I can't remember the artist's name. There was an artist who is a part of a, another popular Christian band who actually came out. Uh, he was married at one point, came out as as gay, and uh, was booked. To, to perform at some big music festival, Christian music festival out in, I think in California. And the, at the last second, uh, kind of the promoter started to, to back out and, and they were like, you can't basically told him he couldn't perform. And, uh, one of my favorite fun bands from back in the day, five iron frenzy, uh, like could, could not have made me prouder in that moment. They invited, they almost pulled off the, the, the festival as a result of that because they thought it was wrong and they actually played their set, but they invited him to come out and sing with them. And I thought that was... That's awesome. Yeah, it was like, what a, what a clever That's way awesome. to, to stand up for this, this person. And I thought, yeah, I thought that was great. But yeah, well, there, there I, seems see, to be my, no choice, though, my, right? Well, my take on that is, is, like, I have empathy because it's like, if you are a part of a community that's adhered by a set of beliefs, um, then then if there's someone in that community that is saying they don't hold those beliefs anymore, uh, it, it's somewhat natural that they would, that they would begin to be excluded by that community. If that's the very thing that's holding them together, I'm not necessarily talking about the same sex, 
uh, issue at this point. I, I mean, sort of like for me specifically, like, like if I come out and say, I don't think I believe in God. Well, if belief in God is part of the thing that's holding the whole Christian music community together, that's sort of, sort of understandable that I might not be able to participate in that community in the same way anymore. So I'm not, I'm not on a crusade to sort of like make Christianity accept anything in particular, because I'm just not, I'm not in a place where I want to, where I want to try and force anyone to do anything, but I'm just in a place where I'm like, well, for, for me, I, I recognize that if you do, if you, if, if you, if you have a career in Christian culture in any way, whether it's in a band or as a pastor or whatever, your, your financial well-being depends on you not challenging those beliefs. And so for me personally, I was like, I will never put, put myself in, in the hands of a community like that again. And not because they've done me wrong, but because I want the freedom to be able to change my mind. And I don't, I don't have it if, if my entire financial well-being depends on me towing the line. You know what I mean? Yeah, and how much of that also kind of restricts your ability to truly be fully honest in your music? Oh, absolutely. Like, like okay, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Um, <laughs> so, 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 Christian music. Okay, let's back up. Uh, music in general. If you want to, if you want to do music for fun then you can just make your art and it doesn't matter who listens to it. If, if you don't need to make a living from it, then it can just be art and it can be great for its own sake. And you're, you have total freedom. If you want to make a living doing it, well, now you're, now you're combining art and commerce. And, and so there's certain things that like by injecting business into this, into the mix, you're, by definition, you're putting restrictions on your art. Um, and it's a trade-off. You're like, you're like, well, I want to be able to do this for a living. So I'm going to submit to the limitations that come with making your art a business. Uh, it, 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 it's part of what you give up in your art when you accept the business side of it. Um, and that's just a it's just a trade-off. You have to, you have to accept it if you want to do it for a living. Then when you add uh, a career in Christian music, you're, you're adding a third element and that's ministry. And so now you have three elements, art, business, and ministry, and, and they needed to be, they need to be blended in some way. And different Christian artists will blend those three things in different, in different ways. And I don't think there's a right or wrong there. It's just that some people blend it in a particular way that tends to work really well. And then other people might blend it in a way that, that doesn't seem to work as well. Um, but there's a wide spectrum of, of artists that blend those three things in different ways, but, but each of those three puts limitations on the other. And so, you know, by injecting ministry into this already, interesting mix of, of art and business in order for the ministry to work, you have to limit art and limit business to some degree. 
Uh, and in order for the business to work, you have to limit ministry and limit art to some degree. And in order for the art to work, you have to limit ministry and limit business to some degree. It's a relationship. Um, and, and I think sometimes people, when they hear the music, they assume that it's just art. And it is not. Because <laughs> if it was just art, you probably wouldn't hear it. Um, it, it, it wouldn't, you know, like the business side of it is what allows it to reach you at all. And if you're in Christian music, the, the, the ministry aspect of it is what allows it to exist in that space because otherwise it would just be general market music. And, and it also, the ministry element is, is what allows that music to pass through the various gatekeepers that, that are sort of the referees of Christian music. Um, and that's probably the aspect that people have the biggest problem with. Uh, and, and to some degree that, that, that frustration's fair, but, um, but, but I think that whenever you're, you know, in a Christian band, you have to find your own blend of those three things. Um, and if you can choose to be upset about the fact that each of those three limits the other, but it's sort of a fundamental reality and it's no one's fault. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so talk about like, is there, is there a pressure that is placed on uh, a quote Christian band by the industry to maintain a certain image? And how does that affect the dynamic? Cause obviously you're not a solo artist. You've got three, sometimes some bands, four other individuals in a band together making music who all I'm assuming have very different opinions and ideas and um, you know, that sort of thing. So how does that affect that dynamic? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, very often, guys in a band will tend to see things similarly, partially because they, they maybe came up together and have similar upbringings or, or you spend enough time together and they, they, they tend to agree on most, most things internally. Not always. Uh, obviously there's some, some cases where people disagree a lot, uh, internally. Um, there, there's definitely pressure, you know, if you're in a band, well, I'll say this. If you're in a band, you you want as many people listening to your music as possible. If you're in a Christian band, you've already limited your audience by saying you're a Christian band, right? You've, you've gone from the entire music industry to like, oh, now I'm, I'm marketing myself to people who want to listen to Christian music. So you've already limited your audience right there. Um, and you don't really want to limit your audience further if you can help it. And so... Uh, by the nature of that, you're encouraged to stay away from, uh, uh, controversial topics. So, you know, like, you know, same sex marriage, for instance, like probably best not to talk publicly about that, uh, either for or against, you know, because, because if you talk publicly about something controversial, you're likely to, to tick somebody off and lose some audience. And like, and what do you have to gain? Like, not, not really anything. Um, uh, at least that's, that's sort of the perspective that I felt like I, I lived under for a long time. Um, and, that, and, and that seems so like, that seems very, it, it's funny you should say that because it, it reminds me of, I, I think the singer's name is, uh, Lauren Daigle. If, if, if I'm saying that correctly, yeah, yeah. I, I seem yeah, to remember that's, that's her name. Not, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, not too long ago, she she had made some comments. Somebody asked her what she felt, uh, you know, what her thoughts were on that very topic, and she just said, "I I don't know." And all she said was, "I don't know," 
more or less, you know, and yeah, caught all sorts of flack on online. Yeah, I I know her. I mean, not super super well, but uh, I I've we've met and we've we've written a song together before. Um, she's obviously wildly successful now. Um, I think I think she is a sweetheart. Um, and she did not get into this in order to be the arbiter of Christian truth, right? right? Like, right. like that's, that's not why she's here. She loves music. She loves singing. She has an incredible voice. Mm-hmm. And, and when someone asked her about her, her, uh, you know, views on homosexuality, I mean, if you speak, there's no, in that community, in that space, there's not really an answer that she can give that's, that's going to be universally accepted. Right. It's just not going to happen. So, so unfortunately, like when you're in that position, you get that, you get asked that question and you sort of sigh. You're like, oh, okay, <laughs> here we go. Um, and I, I feel for her too, because as a, as a, as a woman, she's been subject to um, criticism on, on things that men never would be. I mean, I remember she got to play Jimmy Fallon, um, one time and, oh, I think she maybe has, has played Fallon several times, but, uh, she, she, she went on this, you know, mainstream late night show and she, she crushed it and she's, she's fantastic. Uh, and she got all this criticism for the fact that she was wearing, uh, an outfit that showed like the tiniest bit of cleavage. Oh, jeez. And like, it wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't outrageous at all, in my opinion. Uh, no, I, I, I understand that's subjective. But, like, no guy has to deal with that. Right. Um, and I remember, like, Christian YouTubers going on and posting like, their hot takes on Lauren Daigle's bloody outfit. Oh, and I geez. remember just being so disgusted and defensive of her because I, I know her heart and, like, She's not promiscuous. Like I, 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 as far as I know, I, it's like, that's not, that's not who she is at all. And like to, I don't know, to criticize her on that felt so petty. And I'm just like, guys, come on. Like, what are we even talking about here? Like whenever there's some sort of, um, sort of like purity competition, like who can be the most pure, like we've just at that point we've just devolved from from talking about meaningful things to talking about just meaningless things. Yeah. I think. And it just seems like the larger the platform, the shorter the leash when it comes to specifically uh Christian music. You know, it's like Yeah. There's no room for evolution whatsoever. Well, I mean I I, I see some some potential areas of progress. First off, I think, I think Christians are getting, uh, well, obviously sometimes in the climate we're in right now, this doesn't always seem like the case, but on Mm -hmm. average, I I think Christians are getting more thoughtful about what they, what they believe and what they think of as right and wrong. Um, like, like uh, to use an example of Christian music, like uh, it used to be that like secular music is bad. Christian music is good. And that was it. It was black and white and culture changed to where it was a lot more like, you know, you had, you had people 
Christian moms taking their daughter to see Taylor Swift and it wasn't a big deal, you know? And, and, um, that's progress to me where like, instead of just going Christian, good, non-Christian, bad, right? like instead you're, you're looking at every piece of music or every book or whatever, every source of information that your kids are seeing. And you're going like, okay, it's not about Christian or not Christian. It's about like, do I think that this is bringing something good to their life? or not. And that's a more thoughtful, nuanced way to just approach life and the world. And, and I think overall Christians are, are getting better at that. And, and then also like social media and, and streaming and modern technology has made it. So there's, there's way more ways for people to get things in front of an audience. Um, so like, for instance, with you, like this podcast, like you don't have to get approval from anyone to say anything in particular on this podcast, right? Like it's like it's you, and then it goes to your audience, uh, and and that dynamic of direct connection between whoever's creating something and then the audience, that's eliminating a lot of gatekeepers. So, like an example I like to think about in music is uh, this hip hop artist named Lecrae. Yeah. And and this label he's involved with called Reach Records, they're based in Atlanta. Like Lecrae, before he was big, no Christian label gave him the time of day. Which is they were like, crazy. Eh, no, no, like if if we want Christian rap, we'll do like KJ five two. Because we're comfortable with him. Yeah. And I actually I know I, I I came up in similar circles with, with KJ. So I know him and I li- I like him. So I'm not yeah. bashing him. But yeah. um but you know he's white, and he his brand of hip hop is not particularly aggressive. And then you have Lecrae, who's a black dude from Atlanta, who's steeped in hip hop culture, and uh, and has a ton of very challenging, authentic things to say. And he's really good. Yeah. And none of the labels would even give him the time of day. And so he went and did it himself as an independent artist and got massive. And to the point where like, you could argue, I I don't know if this is still the case, but it could be that like, he's one of the most successful Christian hip hop artists, uh, uh, you know, ever maybe. Um, and, uh, and he has the ability to chart his own course because he didn't sign up for the machine, you know? Yeah. Um, and more and more, like for for people who want to create something that doesn't fit into the box, uh, that doesn't ex- fit into some sort of pre-existing box, um, you sort of have to go go it alone or, or build your own team or do it yourself. And that's becoming a lot. Uh, there's a lot more tools out there to do that now than there used to be. So that's a good thing. Feeling like all your plans are slipping right through your hands If you got troubles deep as an ocean Trying to breathe again But worries keep sinking in Yeah, it's it's been fun for me as a slightly older dude now <laughs> Because a lot of the bands... <laughs> A lot of the bands I grew up with who had broken up at some point in time, especially like rock bands, you know, like uh, the early 2000s were like this beautiful golden age of like rock music. And 
it, it just kind of a lot of it just kind of faded away in lieu of kind of more of this like electronic stuff uh, that we hear now. And a lot of those bands, you know, at some point weren't making it as big anymore, or never made it big. And so they kind of broke up, but now that like, but they still have fans and the fans have grown up and the fans have money and now they can, they can work directly with their fans. And so a lot of them have gotten back together and are making new music. In, and I just, I love it. I think it's great. That's so, that's so cool. And so interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that all the people that I knew in the early 2000s in these scrappy indie bands and stuff like that, like, at that point, like, dude, we were all so poor, mm-hmm. and and we lived out of vans and ate, you know, like, we'd stay at random people's houses, and, like, I remember being on a tour uh, on this this uh, this club tour one time and catering was a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter. And I remember what? just being like, I remember for, for five bands. Oh my gosh. And, and, and I remember just being like, like kind of insulted and being like, like to the promoter, just sort of being like, really? Like, this is the food you're providing. Uh, and, and I didn't, I'm like, I don't really like peanut butter. So I was just like, I'm going to go, you know, to McDonald's and get a dollar menu burger or something. Yeah. And, and and then I remember seeing one of the other bands like pounce on that loaf of bread in that jar of peanut butter uh. and watch them just devour it. And I remember just being like, this is one of the saddest things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. So so to go from that to now, like 20 years later, now we all have families and jobs and 401ks. You know, those of us that decided to actually like get some sort of a job outside of music or something like that. So, yeah. so it's really interesting to see this, this group of, you know, this social group of people that we're all, we were all so scrappy and rebellious. And now we're like, you know, raising <laughs> kids and trying to determine if our like public school district is any good. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, trying to figure out what tax bracket we're in, and you know, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's, it's funny, funny though. Thing. Yeah, it's it's hilarious because it's kind of like uh, I, I've supported more of of my favorite bands uh, through like Kickstarter or some sort of like crowdsourcing yeah. thing now. Because I'm like, heck yeah, I'll throw some money at you. Like you know, if it means I get new music, heck yeah. Like yeah, because now that we're in our 30s and 40s, we have a little bit of money, <laughs> like yeah. enough 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 that we can be like, oh, if someone is asking for money you know, for help to make some art that I believe in, like I can, I can do that. Like, like, um, and, and that is beyond music too. Like there's this guy, um, I don't know if you know who this is. Do you, do you know who Phil Drysdale is? It sounds familiar. So he has a podcast. He's based in the UK. Um, and he, he has a podcast where he basically, his goal is to help people deconstruct their faith and rebuild something new. That's sort of how he says it. Okay. Um, and, and he, he does, you know, he does the Patreon thing. Yeah. Um, and then he also accepts donations from people and he, you know, he puts out a ton of really interesting, really helpful content for people going through this process. And so he's, he's trying to do it full time and and I really value what he's doing. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I saw at one point that, you know, him post a link to like, Oh, if you value what I'm doing, you know, um, here's a place you can donate if you want to be part of it. And I was like, yeah, I will do that. Yeah. So I just went and donated because, 
he's doing something that I think is valuable. That's that whole, like there's like six or seven different things in there that weren't possible 10 years ago. Yes. Yes. And that, that's encouraging to me that, that, that it's getting easier for people to, to, to make things that are meaningful and, and, and it's getting easier for others that find value in those things to support the people creating them. And that's good. Absolutely. Cause it seems to me that it, it starts to take some of the power away from the, the corporate machine that may or may not have an influence over the final product. You know, I remember hearing sure, sure, horror yeah. stories about bands who would go into the studio and they would have all these different people coming in like, well, I think it needs to sound like this, you know, and it's like, what a way to neuter the creative process, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's definitely, there's good versions of that and bad. Uh, um, we were a part of two different label deals over the years. The, the first one was with Tooth and Nail, which uh, you, you probably have some familiarity with. Oh but, yeah, um, very much. <laughs> their, their, yeah, their their A and R process was basically like, do whatever you want, and we'll see if it works. And nice. the The first time, the first time <laughs> we let you do that, we're not going to spend very much money on you, uh, and we're just going to kind of throw you out on tour and see if you sink or swim. And if you, if you, if you swim, most of, most of the bands that they signed did one record and then disappeared off the face of the earth. I have but noticed some that. Of them, <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, that, cause that was their process. Sign everybody, make them feel good about being a signed band. Cause that was a badge of honor, right? Oh, we're signed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not, not really realizing that like, that's not the culmination of anything. That's the beginning. Maybe. Uh, so, so, uh, so they would sign, you know, everyone and anyone, and then they would sort of get a record together as quickly and cheaply as possible, put it out there and then see what happens. And then if it succeeded at all, then they would pour more resources into the second and following, you know, records. That was their MO. But they, they were pretty, they were pretty hands off. Uh, they didn't, you know, most artists like the idea that the label would stay out of the creative process and, and tooth and nail was very much like that. Uh, and so that's, you know, I think at the time I thought that was a good thing. And and for some people it certainly is, but then our second label was much more hands-on in the creative process, but there was a lot about that that I appreciated. Um, because, you know, for instance, A and R, like if the, if you send a song in to the A and R guy, and he's like, I don't think this is going to work. Um, a lot of artists might be like, well, dude, that's, this is my art. Like, don't get in the way of my art. And, and what, what a good A&R guy is doing is not trying to interfere with your art, but they're trying to take the place of the market in your creative process. And what I mean by that is if they let you do whatever you want and you release it, the market is going to decide if it's any good. And if, if the market doesn't like what you put out, you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> right. And, and so A&R, when it's properly walked out, their job is to basically mediate in between you and the market and anticipate, you know, is the market going to spank you for this or is it going to reward you for this? Uh, and, and, 
when that relationship is healthy, it's actually really good. Uh, the A&R guy at, at, at Fairtrade, his name's James Rieger, uh, and he, he, is a, a, he, he became a dear friend to me, and I, I think really highly of him. I think he's a fantastic A&R guy. And I say that even though he made my life very hard. <laughs> um, and, and he was not quick to be like, oh, John, you're the best. Oh, John, I mean, you, you know, everything you do is amazing. You know, it wasn't like that. It was, he was encouraging, but, but most of the time when I sent in a song, he did not go, that's a hit, you know, uh, he, he, he was tough on me, but I'm grateful because his influence really allowed, allowed us to have a number of songs that really succeeded. And I don't think that would have happened without him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like he, he the influence he had was was to push you to be even better than maybe you would have been if you had still had oh, he absolutely, a hands-off. Yeah, he absolutely made me better, no question. Um, uh, so so I I think there are situations where where the A&R sort of and marketing machine is damaging to an artist, but I don't think it always is. Um, I think it can be very, very healthy and very helpful. Um, and so if you're an artist and you're looking to figure out like, should I sign a deal with a label? Which label should I work with? Um, that's, that's always the thing I tell people to pay the most attention to is that, you know, A and R get to know the A and R team and, and try to get to the bottom of, of the question of, are they going to make you better? Mm. And do they, do they, do is is your goal for your music the same as their goal for your music? Um, and, and if it is, it, it can be a good thing, you know. Um, like our our big goal, you know, when I was working with James, the big goal was to have songs that that really did well at Christian radio. And there's no way I would have succeeded as much as I did uh, without him pushing back on me and, and being a part of that process. There's just no way. So it can be a good thing. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so talk about like, cause I want to go back a little bit to something you said at the beginning of the interview where you talked about your, your upbringing a little bit. And so, um, so I want to talk a little bit about what informed kind of your faith going into becoming a part of a Christian band. So you said you grew up a pastor's kid. I am also a pastor's kid and we have a very unique, ah. uh, yeah, <laughs> only other PKs can truly understand. But, um, oh, sure. so I don't know about you, but I would love to hear your take on this. But I know for me personally, uh, number one, everyone assumed that I knew everything my dad went, uh, knew, even though he's the one that went to seminary for four years, not me. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. they just assume I had the Bible memorized and knew everything. Um, uh, Number two, I think the big, the big thing for me is as a result, it probably, my spiritual journey was probably very, in fact, I know it was very different than a lot of my friends. Uh, what was, what was that like for you? I guess when, uh, when did you start to ask questions that kind of led you on this journey? Well, I I think there are certain elements that have been present the whole time. Uh, and, and, the, the the type of churches I grew up in were very charismatic, very experiential. Um, actually, I mean, I know you have some uh, history with the vineyard. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was a vineyard, a vineyard pastor for a long time. Oh, no kidding. And he, oh yeah. And he, uh, and he was a part of a group of churches in Ontario up in Canada that actually left the vineyard in the mid nineties because there was, uh, a quote unquote move of the spirit. Mm, okay. Uh, uh, that they, they casually referred to as the Toronto blessing. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Uh, yes, yes. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, so my dad was very, very involved in that uh, movement, and it, it was, I guess, charismatic enough and wild and crazy enough that the Vineyard Church sort of became, un- or the Vineyard group of churches became uncomfortable with it. Uh, and so, you know, I came up in a very, uh, very expressive, very charismatic, uh, very wild sort of expression of faith. And that was just my normal because, you know, you you think it's normal whatever you grow up in. Right. And then I started going to a, ba- a Baptist church when I was like 18 or 19. And I was like, oh, weird. <laughs> they like, they sing a song one time through and then they finish it. They don't sing the same song for 30 minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they, you know, when the when the pastor gets up to teach, he teaches on a particular Bible verse. He doesn't just get up and say, mm, God is good. Isn't God good? Oh, he's good. You know, uh, it's like the Baptist church was this very structured, very thoughtful, very intelligent um, sort of environment. And that was new to me. I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. And then once I started touring, I, I, I realized that the the average sort of, evangelical American church is not what I grew up with <laughs> at all. And, and, and that was, that was interesting. Um, I, you know, I'm also Canadian, so there's cultural, there's a cultural element to all of that. Um, where like in, in Canada, if you say you're a Christian, that's, that's saying something, you know, uh, in the, in a lot of the U S I think if you say, if you say I'm a Christian, whoever you say that to will probably say like, Oh yeah. 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 I mean, me too. You know, right. at least definitely in, in the South anyway, for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but Christianity is far, 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 far from the default position in, in Canada. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, when I, when I started touring and experiencing Christianity in the U S uh, it, it definitely changed my perspective on, on some things for sure. Yeah, so so take that take that to its logical conclusion here, where we where we find ourselves today. So so obviously, sure, you know, you, you guys were very, as you said, like uh, you guys kind of progressed in terms of songwriting and in, in, in terms of being more overt about your your um, lives of faith. And to go for, so to go from that to you know where you made this statement a couple of weeks ago, uh, what what led up to that? And then um, I'm just curious to based on obviously like the news cycle and all that stuff we talked about at the top, like what, what the reaction was by, by the fan base. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I realized I didn't really sort of get into that. Like you asked. Um, (laughs) I I think the seeds of me doubting this stuff go way back to my early experiences, uh, as a teenager, um, just noticing certain, certain things, um, seeing people prophesy in church, Noticing that it was always the same person who felt the need to to have the attention that comes with 
spontaneously speaking a prophetic word, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Public prayer always felt kind of strange to me because, you know, the classic thing, like you're in a circle of people and everyone's going to go around in the circle. Everyone's going to pray. And the circle's going around and they're getting closer to you where it's going to be your turn. You're like, ah, I need to say something really good. Right. Because like, I want to, I want everyone to think I'm really spiritual. Um, and then the person before you says the thing you were going to say, and you're like, shoot, like (laughs) now I got to start from scratch. Yes. Like, or maybe, or maybe I'll just say, you know what? I echo, I echo what, (laughs) what so-and-so said, you know? Um, so it's like, like those are examples of things where, where it, it started to feel more like a game that everyone was playing rather than like a coherent set of beliefs that guides your being in the world. Right. Which, which I've learned that there are expressions of of faith that are actually very centered around uh, a a coherent expression of a mode of being, you know, Catholicism or Lutheranism or, you know, like, like uh, some of the more traditional expressions of Christianity are very focused on that. Um, Uh, but as as time went on, I just started sort of experiencing things that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and then, and then intellectually, uh, I, as I started reading and branching out more, I started noticing things about the Bible that bothered me and being like, well, that's, that's sort of strange about this. And, um, uh, noticing inconsistencies and, um, having a hard time answering questions when certain people would ask like, Oh, no, well, what do you do about this? You know, how, as a Christian, sometimes you'll run into like a snarky atheist who has some quip, right. Uh, that sort of challenges you. So I really wanted to understand better. And, and I, I discovered on, on an intellectual level that the more I read the Bible and the more I read the, about the Bible and the more I read about how the Bible came to be, I was sort of like, ooh, there's a lot here I didn't know. And there's a lot here that requires explanation. And apologetics is a whole branch of of sort of philosophy or theology designed to defend the sort of weak spot in the Bible and Christian thought. And they... It seems to me that like the the very existence of apologetics sort of indicates that there's there's something under the surface that's maybe not quite right. Yeah. Uh and and so, you know, like 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 I think a lot about like well there there aren't entire societies dedicated to defending the idea of gravity. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. It's 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 self-evident. We don't have existential debates about w- whether lettuce is a real thing, you know, it right. just is. And so, so I, I had various moments where I'm just like, okay, like, what do I really believe? And, and what am I basing my beliefs on? Um, and when I started to sort of take a step back from the band a couple of years ago, I started getting into film work, um, doing, doing, you know, film and video stuff. That's when I realized, okay, if I go fully into this career of doing film work, then I, 
I can actually have that career without believing anything in particular. It doesn't require me to. So what do I actually believe if I'm not required to believe anything in particular for my career? And that sort of really set off the deconstruction process for me. Every time I couldn't choke back the tears Every time I couldn't fight off my fears You were paving the path that brought me Paving the path that brought me here Every time Yeah, so, so talk about kind of the reaction uh, by both your, your bandmates. It sounds like you weren't as, as super active as you had been. But um, it, but from what I could see, it sounds like your your bandmates were pretty supportive. Um, so talk they about were. that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I had I had conversations about this stuff uh, quite a lot before I ever posted about it publicly. Uh, conversations with the guys in the band, conversations with my family, conversations with close friends, um, and and you know they were all very very kind and very supportive. I think the band guys for a period of time were a little bit like concerned that, you know, if John's going down this road, what does that mean for the band? And that's a, a justifiable concern, you know? Um, but, but ultimately by the time I came out and said something publicly, we had all sort of moved on to other things. And, and so uh, I think they felt a little bit more free to support me knowing that it wasn't, it, that it wasn't likely to hurt any of our careers really. Yeah, that's good. Um, so yeah, then talk about like, cause obviously there's still, you still have a, a, you know, pretty large fan base that, that love, love the band. And, and so obviously after all of this makes the, the media cycle after it's picked up by Fox news, like what was the reaction by and large? Like, did you feel a lot of support uh, or was it a lot of, you know, condemnation, like our mix, like what, what was your feeling? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was really pleasantly surprised that anyone that knows me personally that reached out was very kind, um, very loving. Um, obviously like some of them are concerned about, you know, my well being and, you know, my place in eternity, (laughs) um, which, you know, like, that's a, that's sort of a separate thing, but, but I always think it's funny. Like when, like, if you really believe in the strict interpretation of heaven and hell and salvation, like if you believe that really deeply, like, how are you not trying to convince absolutely everyone you meet? Right. right? Like, it's like, it's like sometimes I, I, the fact that Christians are so slow to talk about their faith with, with other people that aren't believers because they're like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, like I don't want to make them uncomfortable or whatever. Like if you really believe the strict sort of Christian vert, you know, like the, the mainstream normal tradition, traditional Christian perspective on heaven and hell and salvation, if you really believe that, like, you should be desperate to tell people about this stuff. And the fact that we're not sort of indicates to me that there's a lot of people that are Christian or would describe themselves as Christian who don't believe it maybe as deeply as they might think they do. Uh, and I would, 
I, I say that because I think I was one of those people, you know, like the thought of talking to a non-Christian friend about Jesus, that was terrifying to me. I'm like, oh gosh, they're going to think I'm this Bible thumper or whatever. Right. And so, I mean, I, I kind of just didn't do it a lot. And that indicates to me that like deep, deep, deep down, I don't know how, how deeply I really did believe, you know? Yeah, and I, I don't think you're alone in that. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, I've I've heard um I, I've heard a similar saying about you know if you believe that to be true, then you would walk over broken glass essentially to save everyone on the planet. But I I just my sense is that I don't think because we've addressed the topic on the podcast multiple times. We've had various different academic guests come on and and provide alternate theories on the subject. Um, but, oh yeah, I have thought too. We can talk about that if you want. I love it. Yeah, it's just it, it doesn't make any sense. Like I never really put much thought into it. To be honest, I was raised. You mentioned Lutheran earlier. My dad is a, a ELCA Lutheran pastor, which is kind of the more progressive branch, I would say, of of the different flavors of Lutheran out there. But uh, okay. uh, it was just never something that was really like we never got the fire and brimstone version. So that was not my yeah. uh, experience growing up. It was not something that was really, you know, it was a thing that we, we knew it existed, this idea of hell, but like we never, it was never the focal point ever. Um, yeah. and, and so it wasn't until my, my later years as, as a, you know, college student uh, experiencing kind of more of this North American evangelical Christianity that that became more something at the forefront. And then I really started to think about it and researching it and, um, I mean, there's a whole thing we could talk about, about horrible Bible translations and <laughs> things of that nature, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, I just don't think by and large, most Christians, at least in the United States anyway, have really put serious thought to it, much less researched it to see like, what does the Bible really say about this? And what, what does that really say about our views on God? If we say he's both all loving and would condemn a human being in this temporary blink of an eye existence uh, to this fiery pit for eternity. It just, it doesn't, it never made sense to me. Oh, it, I think, I, I think that the notion of hell is one of the biggest problems that Christianity has. Um, it, it, because on one hand, I mean, Richard Rohr says this so, so well. Yeah. Uh, he says, he says, and it's sort of not exactly relating to hell, but I think it's related. Um, he says, we're, we're trying to tell people to have hope while damning everything in sight. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and what he's getting at there is that like Christian culture will tends to go around and say, that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. And then the ultimate bad obviously is if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. Right. And, and it's like, well, that, uh, and then we're telling, we're telling people that like God is like a loving father. And does that sound like a loving father to you? Right. Like it doesn't to me. No. So, right, right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I read this, I went through a phase where I was really obsessed with heaven and hell and I read a lot about it. And, um, you, you may know this book, M- my favorite book on the subject is called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut by Bradley Jersak. Are you familiar oh, with yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, have you ever interviewed him? 
No, he's actually I've been corresponding with him, so he's he's uh he's definitely oh. on on the list. <laughs> cool. I I'm a fan. So nice. so her gates will never be shut. Basically, it outlines three sort of potential ideas of of what hell could potentially be based on scripture. And what's interesting, he sort of comes to this conclusion that, you know, the three ideas in a nutshell are uh, uh, infernalism, which is like you literally eternally will be consciously tormented forever, which is horrible. Right. Uh, Annihilationism, which is basically that, you know, if those who go to hell, quote unquote, go to hell, they just cease to exist. Right. And, And then there's universalism, which is basically that when all is said and done, everyone will, will go and, and be reconciled unto God in heaven. Those are sort of your three options based on scripture. And he makes the point that if you want to believe in any one of those three, you have to prioritize some scripture over other scripture, because every one of those views seems to be supported by some verses, but also seems to be refuted by other ones. Right. And, and so he, he sort of makes the case for like, I mean, I, I think I, I think he leans toward universalism, but I mean, if you get to talk to him uh, on a podcast, you should ask him. Yeah. But uh, but it's very interesting that like when you really dig in, it's not clear what hell is, uh, if it is a thing at all, um, and and that's one of the many things that has been a part of the my process of deconstruction because whenever I investigate an issue, I find that no matter how fundamental it is, there's, there's a group of people or there has been at some point that believed something different. And that plurality of views indicates to me that it's, it's not certain. And so, uh, so that sort of led me to the question of, okay, if there's a wide variety of views on almost everything, then are we all just sort of making it up as we go? Right. Yeah. And, and that, that was sort of the linchpin of me going like, that thought is, is where I sort of finally got to a place where I'm like, it's possible that God's not real at all. And that thought I think I, I think I got to that thought maybe a, just over a year ago mm. and it threw me into an absolute existential funk. Like, like I, I was really depressed for months because I, I felt like any sense of meaning or purpose in my life had been taken from me and also security. Like it's comforting to go through life, believing that God is looking out for you. And to come face to face with the idea that maybe he's not real and and therefore not looking out for you, I mean, it just means you're incredibly vulnerable and your children are vulnerable. And um yeah, I started going to therapy after that. Oh man. Um which I recommend to anyone. Therapy yes. is amazing. Same. Um <laughs> I'm a huge it, proponent. It, it, oh, absolutely. It's like the thing I I just had an idea. I was about to say, like, like I was about to say, I, I want to pay for people's first session 
just to prove to them how valuable it is. Um, maybe I need to start doing, doing more of that. Yeah. There's, you should start a, like a pay it forward service that that's just for therapy. Yeah. I agree. Cause a lot of people yeah. are so hesitant to go. I can't tell you how many times I've had people around me say, you know, if I went to therapy, here's what I would want to talk about. It's like, dude, just go like, go and talk about it. Then Yeah. You should yeah, definitely like, do that. <laughs> like there's, there's two things that I think are the greatest barriers to people going to therapy and it's money and pride and, 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 and mostly just pride because mm-hmm. we spend money on things that we care about. And like most therapists are somewhere around $125 uh, uh, per, you know, 50, 45, 50 minute session. Um, so like if you go, uh, every other week, for a year, that's 25 sessions ish, you know, mm-hmm. and that might cost you three grand. Well, how much, how many things have we spent three grand on? Um, and, and like, I've spent three grand on things that are way less meaningful than the value I've gotten from therapy. Absolutely. Uh, and you're not dropping three grand at a time. You go once, pay 125, go again. You know, I would say, go at least three or four times before giving up on it. But, um, but man, I, I, I think therapy is incredible. Sorry. I feel like I got on a tangent there about therapy. No, no, no. It's okay. You said, uh, uh, existential crisis led to, to therapy. Oh yeah. And so where are yeah, you? Where, I, I, yeah. As I say, where, where did that bring you? Where did like, so you, you've obviously come out, uh, to, to a, a place of, I would assume peace and, you know, so, so what, Obviously, yeah. therapy has helped to some degree. I would, I would I used, imagine. I use the word peace uh, hesitantly um, because I have moments where I feel peace and moments when I don't. I, I don't feel that existential dread anymore. I feel like I worked through that. Um, uh, yeah, there, there was a period of like five or six months where I was really, really depressed. Therapy definitely helped, um, but but I sort of came to grips with the fact that life is full of uncertainty and, and it helped me to realize that life had been uncertain the whole time. I had just had this false sense of security, uh, given to me by like a false sense of certainty. I I was certain in things that I, I, I could not have actually been certain about. Um, and so, and, and so recognizing like, Hey, Whatever got me here, whatever has been real the first 35 years of my life is also real, you know, ongoing. So the fact that, you know, is God real? Is he not? I don't know. But whatever, whatever was true about that before is still true now. <laughs> so my realization that it's possible that God might not be real doesn't change the metaphysical reality of whether he is or not. So that that might sound like a technical thing, but it helped me. Um, it, you know, it, it was, so whatever I'm grappling with, it's not that God was real up until now and now he's dead, you know? Right. It's not that. You didn't kill him? That's Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. So we could talk about Nietzsche, uh, but, right. Right. but that's another conversation. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I feel much more peace now because I, I sort of recognize that so much about life is uncertain. You have to embrace it as such. And, um, 
and try to find the good part of that. Like for me, I, I feel like knowing that the future is uncertain, knowing that I can't be sure I'm guaranteed any kind of an afterlife, it puts an increased emphasis on this life and, and, and the, the moment I'm in right now. So it, it means that like when I spend time with my kids, like, man, I want to be present in those moments. I don't want to be distracted. I don't know how many of those moments I'm going to have. So like be, be in it, you know, like value the things that are spend time on the things that really matter right now. Cause you're not guaranteed anything in the future. Um, that, that, that has been something that's come out of this for me. That's been really meaningful. Uh, and there's, there's a number of other things like that too. Like, um, for me, for me, uh, one of, one of the big moments in the deconstruction of my faith was I went and did a, a documentary on this, uh, people group in Uganda and I saw unbelievable suffering. And I, you know, I saw, I saw children the same age as my children, uh, suffering in ways that just broke my heart. And that was a, that was a big moment for me to realize that, um, that, uh, man, I have a hard time reconciling the idea of a loving God with what I'm seeing in front of me right now. And, um, and, and so that was a, the deconstructional aspect of, of that reality. But what I found on the other side of that is like, Hey, I don't know if God is real or not, but I know that suffering, the suffering of these people bothers me. I know that for sure. And so I don't know if I can ask God to help them. I don't know if I can pray that God will do anything uh, about their situation. But I know that in my limited capacity as a human being, there are some, th- I can't do everything, but there are some things that I can do. And so I can, I can sponsor some of the children in one of the orphanages there. Uh, I can, I can do video work for them as cheaply or as, 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 free as often as, as I'm able to. Um, I know that I can use whatever platform I have to try and encourage people to help. Uh, and, and I've done that on Instagram a, a good bit. Um, so, so I feel like this sort of lack of belief in God has actually, in a few areas of my life, has, has pushed me in a direction to want to be more present, more healthy, and to, to dedicate myself to doing something about the suffering of others when I see it and I've noticed that it bothers me. And those feel like things that are, have made my life richer. Oh, that's great. I, you know, it's funny, too, because you mentioned um, one of the points of contention for a lot of people who struggle with a life of faith, not just Christianity, but, you know, you can pick another religion probably that would apply as well. And that is this idea of a loving God and, and the existence of suffering despite that. Um, and why, why doesn't God act in moments like that? Why didn't God prevent, you know, Sandy hook and nine 11 and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that is, I think that is one that a lot of people struggle with. And, and at the end of the day, I don't, I don't care who you are or how well read you are. It's just like, you have to kind of throw your hands up and be like, I don't know. And, um, What's interesting about that is I have a, a guest coming on. Actually, it's the episode. If I ever finish it, uh, it'll go up tonight. Um, with a with a uh, an author who has attempted to try to um, provide 
I don't know, like a theory on on why that might be. And but at the end of the day, it's like it, it's the most satisfying theory I've read. But uh, to be honest, you know, even he would say at the end of the day, I don't know. Like when people say prove it, it's like you can't prove any of this. Really, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious who this is. Can you can you say who it is? Yeah, uh, Thomas J. Ord. Uh, yeah, I was talking with. I thought you were talking about him. No kidding. I was talking with him. I was talking with him on Instagram today. Or sorry, on Twitter today. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. That's so yeah, funny. So I did. I did a pod. I did a podcast uh, with Dan Koch, um, the You Have Permission podcast. Oh yeah. And and he, and Dan's an open theist, which I had never. Uh, I had never heard of that before I spoke with him on his podcast. Yeah. And, uh, and he references Ord a good bit um, and, and uh, sort of recommended that. Uh, and I guess, I guess uh, Tom heard my podcast with Dan and, uh, and decided he, uh, he offered to send me a, a couple of his books. So I, I think he's popping them in the mail to me, which is very generous. Um, but yeah, I, I from what I understand, he's an open theist, which, um, it, you know, for your, for your audience, for your listeners, if you want to know what that means, I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow it. Uh, <laughs> right. your, your conversation with him will be much more, uh, uh, we'll leave that for your conversation with him because he'll do a better job than me, but it's a very, <laughs> very interesting theory about who God might be some aspects of his nature that maybe Christianity has gotten wrong. Yeah. And his, his ideas, his ideas do come the closest I've ever heard to sort of, I'm not going to say solving the problem of evil. Cause I don't, I don't know that it totally does, but it, it is a thoughtful, thoughtful way to look at it. Uh, yeah, totally agree. And we, we had him on before, I want to say like a year ago when his book, God can't came out and he's, um, yeah. he's coming out with, I, or maybe out already, I don't know. Uh, call it questions and answers with God can. And so it's a follow-up that he wrote based on the most prevalent questions he got based off of the, the prior book. Cool. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really fascinating stuff. And, um, I, I definitely highly recommend it, but yeah, that one will be out soon, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's, um, it's probably the most thoughtful, um, potential solution to, to the problem that I've, I'm sure there are others out there, but, um, it's the most, yeah, I actually, yeah, I, I spoke with a um, a pretty well known Catholic bishop yesterday. Oh wow! <laughs> um, and uh, th- this bishop named Bishop Barron, and he has this ministry called Word on Fire, and and uh, it's a pretty respected and well known like Catholic uh, publication and, and and sort of media organization. And he. Uh, he on that show did a, a show sort of discussing my quote unquote deconversion. Um, and I reached out to him and said, Hey, like I actually appreciated some of the stuff that you had to say. Some, some of the other, some of the things that I kind of wanted to give you a bit more clarity about on, on what I actually think. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he, you know, we set up a call and we talked over Skype for like an hour and a half yesterday. That's amazing. Um, and he, we talked about the problem of evil some, and, and he had, he had some really, really great thoughts. Not, not quite along the lines of open theism, but, uh, my favorite thing that he said was that he's like, you know, some of the intellectual answers to the problem of evil don't feel great. 
Right. And so they, they, they emotionally feel incomplete. Uh, and, and he's like, and, th- and he's a, he's a bishop, right? Yeah. And, and he, and he was willing to say like, I, I don't think we can totally, I don't think we totally understand it. And I think that there's aspects of God's nature that we may just never know. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, he, he, he indicated that he thought the problem of evil was the most, uh, significant theological and philosophical problem facing believers. Um, so I just, even his approach, I, I appreciated, um, so yeah, I hope. I mean, I hope you and Tom have a good conversation. I'm looking forward to reading his book. Yeah, yeah. We actually um, we actually uh, recorded last week already, so uh, I'm just putting the fi- finishing editing touches on it. But oh, it, great! Yeah, great, it's great. it's fascinating stuff. The other person I think is really good and, and has been useful to me, um, and I always recommend to people out there is um, is there's a really great rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, out of the UK. Uh, who wrote a really interesting book called, I think it's called Not in God's Name. Uh, and, it, and it addresses um, the whole uh, idea of like all of the violence that that is contained within the Old Testament specifically. Right. Because that's another sticking point. I think that kind of goes along with that, right? Like this idea that like... Yeah, that's a big one for me. Yeah, like God is just kind of this uh, jealous, vengeful, violent guy who's commanding the, you know, us to dash these babies against the rocks and, you know, and, and all this stuff. And so it's like, so to me, there's a, yeah, to me, there's a, very, oh, sorry, I'll, I, I interrupted you, but what, what were you, what were we going to say? Oh, no, I, I think, uh, in general, and I think, uh, you know, Tom and I talked about this last week too. It, it's, if you, if you take the approach, like a lot of North American Christians tend to do, because this is just the way that, uh, that they were raised, uh, to believe it. It's, if you believe that, you know, the Bible, uh, fell out of the sky, fully formed in its final version, uh, then you're kind of forced into a corner. There's a lot of mental gymnastics that, that are required to explain away a lot of that stuff. But then if you, I, I've found for me personally that the more I studied it and the more uh, smarter people than, than I, uh, who I spoke with, who have spent careers studying the Bible, uh, you know, the, the more conversations I've had about it, uh, the more you realize that the history of the creation of the Bible and the, the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the books that weren't included, uh, things of that nature, the more you, you see, I think, the undeniable fingerprint, human fingerprints on these manuscripts. And and then you oh. start to say, hey, oh, like, my gosh, yeah. perhaps, <laughs> perhaps uh, you know, these stories were, you know, included a lot of these very, human uh ideas of of who god is and once you see that uh, look through the lens of like okay you know this is these were human beings uh ancient jewish uh people uh at the time who were doing their best and you can still say it was inspired uh who were inspired to write about their relationship with the divine in using the vernacular that they understood and the things that they understood at the time but but it's very to me it becomes very evident at that point and then I don't yeah. have to stand on my head to defend certain parts of it anymore. I could not agree more. Like when I let go of the idea of biblical inerrancy, yeah. I, I was, I was just like, Oh, well, everything makes more sense now. <laughs> right. Um, and so, and so like to me, like, 
you look at that scripture where God commands Israel to go in and kill every man, woman, and child in, in Canaan, in the promised land, which is a really troubling scripture because it's genocide. Right. Like, I've had straight, I've had straight up arguments with my dad about this. Yeah. Like, cause he tries to explain away the fact that, oh no, no, it's not, it's not, you know, like, oh, those were military installations. Like archeology span has indicated that those are military installations. And I'm like, dad, that's not in the text. Like you're adding an idea to it to make it more palatable. Right. Um, like if you believe that the Bible was the literal word of God, then you have to believe that God literally commanded a group of people to go in and commit genocide. Right. You have to believe that. And so, and so like letting go of biblical inerrancy, all of a sudden you can look at that scripture and go, well, it was an ancient time. It was a very tribal environment. And one, one group of people would very commonly go in and murder an entire other group of people. And, that's just how it was. And, and Israel was participating in that and they wrote about it and they said, God told them to do it. And right. like, I'm sure like, like, like let's, let's look at nine 11, right? Like people got on planes, hijacked them and flew them into buildings because they truly believed God told them to do that or that it was serving God's purposes at the very least. And so People do all kinds of things and then, and then justify them by saying it was a divine command. Right. We still so do it today, it <laughs> you know? Totally. So it shouldn't surprise us that that's in the Bible because that's, that was going on. Right. And it shouldn't shock us. Um, so, yeah, getting, getting rid of biblical inerrancy helped me immensely. Very, very um, freeing, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it just, it's, it, there are so many other instances that you could call to mind of uh, periods of history where we've done horrific things in the name of God as, as Christians, you know, the crusades and, you know, and on and on and on. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that God like really wanted us to go kill what I would presume are hit others of his children. You know, it just, yeah. So I think, once, once I, and honestly, I didn't come again. That's another thing I didn't, I wasn't familiar with until later in life, this idea of biblical inerrancy, uh, that was unfamiliar to me being born and raised a Lutheran. I'm like, Oh, what, what, what do you, what do you believe? You know, I thought that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so like, yeah. I never had some of those predicaments in, in terms of, um, wrestling with certain theological beliefs, because I believe that literally, sure got either possessed someone and ghost wrote it through them or just dropped it out of heaven. You know, I, I never, right. That was never a thing for me. And so like the, so a lot of those things were not problematic for me as a result. So that's, that's very interesting. That sounds, that sounds nice. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) It it took me, it took me 36 years to get there, but Hey, you know, it's, uh, but I think, I think you're not alone. I think you, when you say that, I think there are a lot of people out there probably right now nodding their head. Like, yeah, that was my, yeah. That was my upbringing as well. Um, well, we, we've we've um, definitely have, gone. <laughs> I was going to say we've definitely yeah, gone I, way I, long. <laughs> I was going to say I, I can feel through the wall my wife wondering where when I'm going to help her with the child. When I'm going to help her with the children. So. Right. Yes, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, same. So, uh, uh, 
before I let you go, though, talk real quick about what you're up to now, uh, in particular Steingard Creative and uh, how people can keep up on what you're up to and, and maybe even hire you for, uh, for some work. Yeah, probably the best way to uh, get in touch with me about, uh, well, about this, about matters of faith and stuff like that. I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations about those types of things on my Instagram uh, and that's just John Steingard. And then, uh, I do a bunch of film work and that work is up at, uh, steingardcreative.com. And I know normally when you go on like a podcast or a show, you typically have some sort of product or something that you're hawking. <laughs> and I do not, and I do not, uh, after, after 15, 15 years of doing interviews, promoting music, uh, I'm very accustomed to finishing with like, Oh yeah, so go check out our new song, our new album. Right. Um, I have nothing. I have nothing like that of the sort right now. So uh, I'm engaging with these ideas on a, a, a semi-recreational basis, I guess. But they do seem important, and uh, and and I sort of am tinkering with the idea of writing a book about it. Uh, um, and I've, I've sort of started work on that, but you know, that's not obviously something that is available even to me yet. <laughs> well, if and when you do, uh, please let me know um, so we can we can talk about it and come back on and we yeah. can promote the heck out of it. So, um, love it, love it. All right, sounds good. This is so, yeah, this is so fun. I just think you're a very uh, intelligent and thoughtful person who who um, uh, you know I, I think yeah, it's a joy to to talk about these sorts of things. I always find it no matter where you fall on the spectrum, um, it's just so much fun to talk to people who are just as fascinated with the, with the, the topic. Um, it, it just makes for fun conversations. So I, I appreciate you coming oh, on. Sure. Oh, of course, man. Thank you so much for having me. It is awesome. All right. Thank you. I've been wrestling with my thoughts. I've been searching for daylight. Trying to make sense of the mess. Trying to feel like I'm all right.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.